here and ain't no wannabes here With some not so nice advice for your writing career To be clear, no punches will be pulled But the punch may be spiked How they like before they get on the mic To my left we got the mighty Mer Lafferty And if I piss her off, believe me, she'll come after me And her co-host, Matt Evan Wallace On the right, yes, she may be half as hype But she can take him in a fight So settle in, folks, buckle in and boot up Time to meddle in a way to make your writer shut up It's hard work, but the perk is that it's fun and exciting Facebook will still be there when you're done writing Ditch Diggers! Coming to you live from the Haberdasher in the Ditch Diggers Mansion. It is the, or Manor. Manor? Mansion? Is there a difference? I don't know. We go uh, back and forth. We have no semblance of consistency on this show, and I see no reason to start now. You know, you gotta, you gotta dance with the partner that brung you. That's right, and the partner that brung us today was the Mansion. So, here in the Haberdasher in the Mansion is the Ditch Diggers with Mer Lafferty, Matt Wallace, and special guest Long-time listener and writer and mini-hat-wearer, which is why we found him in the Haberdasher, Mike Underwood. How are you, Mike? I'm doing well. So should I go with the cowboy hat or the trilby? Cowboy. That's personal call, Mike. You know, we're not, we don't tell people what, which hats to wear. On we don't. Digger. I just did. No. Oh, did you? Okay. Well, yeah. I don't. Or apparently does. <laughs> I think I am, I am allowed to wear a cowboy hat because I did live in Texas for four years. I think I four used years to... the minimum, so I think you're good. Like, if it had been three and a half, they'd come for you. But four, you're okay. You can do it. I worked at a horse barn in high school, and I also showed some of their horses. Does that count? No. That does no. not count. No. I, had to, I had to wear the clothes, including the boots. Well, by Texas law, that doesn't count. Like, I don't live in Texas. Like, I don't fucking care what their laws are. Well, I thought that's what we were talking about. If you want to well, flaunt... I the texas code i'm wearing hats you go right ahead like stick it to the man i'm all for it i'm just yeah. letting you know there i'm operating off of texas rules but mer there there is more to the uh the american south than texas so i i leave it to you yes very true. despite how much sheer mass is in texas which is a lot of land mass but mm-hmm. yes it's not just texas so We've established that i will be wearing a bowler a comically small bowler because if you're going to wear a bowler Make it a comically small bowler. So is it small it. enough to count as a fascinator? I was about to ask. Because uh, I was no, going to say I'm wearing a fascinator. And if Matt's wearing a bowler fascinator, then we'll look silly. I want to keep it in that weird in-between space where it's not quite a full-size bowler. It's not quite a fascinator. You can't you can't label my bowler hat, even though it's, it's still called a bowler hat. So it is still labeled. But I think but, people would uh, just think you knocked someone down and took their hat that's smaller than your head. Why 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 am I automatically assaulting someone in the scenario for their hat? Because that why would be I... the only reason you would choose a hat that's way too small for your head that's not well, small enough that's... to be a fashion choice. Maybe that's the only one they have, the haberdashers, as which as we established is where you buy hats and also alcohol and sewing supplies. So we have a shitty haberdasher. I <laughs> no, I just have a normally large head, Mur. And you know, the supply train may be slightly disrupted given the year it's been. Yeah. True. That's because fair. COVID, we have a regular size hats in our Ditch Diggers bench and haberdashers. I'm just so saying, we're... dude, this is, you know, part yours. And if we don't have a haberdasher that caters to your needs, then we have a shitty haberdasher. That's all I'm saying. 
All right, again, I feel like you're getting hung up on labels and semantics, and none of this has to do with anything. We've taken the hat metaphor way too far already, before even really fully explaining what the hat metaphor is, because like everything else, we're doing this backwards. That's right. Thank you for listening to Ditch Diggers. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so before we get into the many hats and everything, Mike, a thing we like to do on the show, which you probably know, because Mike has been one of our longest supporters and listeners, and we appreciate you, Mike, and I just want to thank you for that. You know, day one, one of the one of the day one people. I yeah, feel. Mike was 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 singing our praises before I think we even had our feet under us, and it was it was very very helpful, Mike. It was it was uh, motivating. Well, I I'm grateful because around when Ditch Diggers got started, I had been talking with some friends and colleagues about how I really love to to have more business oriented podcasts in the kind of science fiction publishing world. And then there you are, like uh, Gandalf <laughs> at the turning of the tide. So really, you conjured us, Mike. You summoned us. Wow. I, I, I may have the wished y'all into podcasting. Wow. You know, you, you we've proven your magical powers. But yes, but thank you for that. But again, so you may know that we like to start off uh, the episodes by kind of just going around and talking about what's going on right now in the career side of things for us. What's what's happening? What are we what are we dealing with? You know, not a long segment, just a brief kind of here's what's going on in our in our freelancing lives kind of thing. You want to kick us off there? What do you got going on right now? Like this week, give us a this week kind of encapsulation. Uh, So this week I have been working on revisions for a new novel, uh, which has been really hard because it's very topical, like sociological, political. And, uh, you know, we're not far from an election in the U.S. So earlier in the process i've been able to channel kind of what was going on in the world into the work but revision is already harder for me than first drafting and i think the imminence of the election has made it harder so what i've mostly been doing is little tiny newsy bits in in the world kind of um the same thing that chuck wendick did in wanderers that i thought worked really well so i'm mostly working on that i am in the kind of early germinating stages of developing an idea for what I'm hoping will be the novel after that. Um, And then I've also been doing some mentoring uh, in the CIFLA mentor program and checking in with one mentee pretty regularly um, and one a little bit more irregularly. Um, And then still kind of keeping up the Speculate podcasting where we play tabletop role-playing games with uh, SFF colleagues. And Murr, of course, has uh, played in one of those games. That was a, a fun time. Yeah, so I'm, good. Yeah, I'm dancing around a couple different things. I've not been super productive of late, and I'm just trying to be more comfortable sitting with the fact that the rest of the year is probably going to be pretty hard. I mean, it sounds like you've been super productive to me, but I, yeah. I definitely feel what you're laying down there and i think we all kind of feel the same way we all do the same thing we're all like i did these 50 million things this week wasn't super productive but i'll do better i'll do 100 million next mm-hmm. week it'll be better that's great though man. get on the get on the, the mentoring thing that's important it's good you're out there doing that yeah i i really like the mentoring part of the work i was able to do at angry robot in terms of being an author helping other authors as they get their careers started or are trying to take the next steps and so this mentoring with CIFLA has been a way to, to practice some of that again and to be able to kind of give back to uh, the field more broadly above and beyond just like having people on podcasts and doing signal boosting in terms of like really hands-on one-to-one career development assistance. 
Very cool. And just like, just very briefly, as we're touching on, I'm sure people will wonder, how does one become uh, an SFWA mentee? Like, how does one seek a mentor? Or how does one become a mentor if they want to become a mentor? Yeah, so the mentoring program for SIFWA had its roots in the Nebula Conference. So at the Nebula Conference, which is SFWA's annual conference, um, that really, it started as the Nebula Ceremony for the awards, plus a little bit and has grown into this great professional development conference um, that I think if you're somebody in the science fiction fantasy field and you're looking to make professional connections, I put that pretty high on a list of events to go to. Um, and so they had mentoring at the conference, which would be, um, you know, you meet up with somebody for an hour and SFWA's staff tries to set you up with somebody who has some equivalent experience and applicable information. And they spun this out into a program that is kind of going worldwide. And they, this is the third season, I believe. And the way to find out how to become a mentor or a mentee is probably gonna be to follow the SFWA Twitter feed and keep an eye on news there. They usually announce the mentorship seasons a few weeks in advance and give everybody a, a fair bit of time to fill out like the Google form to become a mentee or to become a mentor. And if you want a mentor, you kind of give some information about yourself and what you're looking for out of a mentor-mentee relationship. And if you wanna be a mentor, it's a similar form, but what you do is you share, here are my experiences, here's the type of mentoring work that I'm comfortable with. And then the CIFWA mentoring team does their very best to match everybody up. And so far I've, I feel like they've done a great job for me. Um, I have two mentees this season because uh, I wanted to, to be able to do a little bit more. And it's been so popular as a program that they have way more demand for mentors than they have people who've been able to volunteer their time, at least in seasons going so far. So for anybody out there who, you know, you're already a ditch digger, you already have some professional experience, they're going to be able to find someone who you can help if you want to spend the time. Very cool, man. Yeah, I totally recommend uh, any of our listeners out there who have the time and are looking to give back. That's a really good way to do it. And I'll, uh, I'll make sure I drop some links, some relevant links on the show notes for that as well. Very cool, Mike. Uh, Mer, what do you got going on? What's, uh, what's happening in the Merverse? Um, actually, a lot of brainstorming, and I'm not saying that's procrastinating. I'm saying I have a project that's uh one of those new weird things i was doing about you know 15 years ago when creation <laughs> was exciting um you might want to specify what you mean by that i'm just gonna throw that out there i don't know if you're... I, I don't want to go too much into it but it's basically a, a i want to try a different mode of storytelling ah okay so you get experimental cool. with your yes Yes, nice. I'll be happy to tell you guys off stream. I just don't want it out yet. Um, of course, yeah, sure. But uh, it's so I've been brainstorming that a lot, and you know that that it's stupid to say this, but you actually have to think about. I'm not going to listen to a podcast or an audio book in the car. I'm either going to listen to music without lyrics or nothing to get my brain bored, so it will start thinking up interesting shit. And uh, I was doing that a lot yesterday and uh, got a uh, got a call in with my agent about some uh, or a, a, an email in with my agent about 
a contract I hope to sign and then can talk about it, but uh, that's that's really it. I'm still kind of focusing more on the live streaming part of my career and planning a future project than getting down and dirty with the project. I have started to actually uh, <laughs> deliver on one of my Patreon promises, which is uh, serial fiction, and I'm just... That was one of those things where I just started writing to see where it would take me, and I'm doing a food blog of somebody who's very, very, very bitter. And, you know, like, her favorite pizza recipe is the local pizzeria number, and <laughs> here's Grandma's recipe. She said never to, uh, never to give it out, or Grandma's meatloaf recipe, she said never to give it out, but, you know, she was a homophobe, so fuck her. And, um, just... A very bitter food blogger, and I have to remember that I need to add to that every month, but it's a lot of fun. It's not science fiction at all, but it's fun. I like it. I like experimental myrrh. That's nice. And yeah, for our listeners who have not yet caught myrrh on Twitch, she's a goddamn Twitch sensation. It's unbelievable. <laughs> that she's becoming is a such superstar a lie. over on Twitch. Oh my like, god. You need to be part of the sensation. I'm just telling you. Get in on it on the ground floor. Because a year from now, you're going to be watching it anyway, and, you know, everybody's going to make fun of you because, you know, you're going to be one of those people coming in late to this really popular thing. You, but, you, yeah. you, you are beautiful, man. I love you. But uh, I mean, it, what, the funny totally thing, what's really funny about Twitch is that uh, it's humbling me and bringing me back to 2005 because I am used to having a, an audience over on this side of the media globe. And right. I would think that Twitch would be somewhat connected, but uh, I am I am really struggling to get people uh, on board, and they're more interested in the podcast. I'm live streaming podcasts and live streaming gaming. They're more interested in the podcast than the gaming, which I guess is good. But uh, you know, I'm not dating birds just for my health, people. I gotta have somebody. Uh, with me the whole time. That's a very weird sentence. So that's about <laughs> it for me, Matt. How about you? Uh, I'm in uh, one of those really lovely periods where you're super busy, but you're also waiting on a million things, which is, you know, that's the best rock and hard place to be in right there. Because I don't have, like, on the publishing side of things, I don't really have anything I'm working on right now because I turned in a new draft of the novel and I'm waiting for edits on that. I've got three or four pitches out, uh, some on spec and some to, you know, some for contracted stuff. And, uh, yeah, so everything I've got out on there, I'm waiting to hear back from people in one form or another. But at the same time, everything's really ramping up on the current uh, video game that I'm doing for, you know, that, that job. So that's keeping me horribly busy. Very exciting process, and I'm I'm really I'm enjoying it, but it's just it's a lot. Um, I don't think I mentioned on the show uh, before. I tweeted about it, but uh, I actually the first video game I worked on shipped a couple of weeks ago. Woohoo! Uh, Wasteland Three, yeah, my first credit, my first credit as a, a video game writer. I was uh, listed as an additional writer, Mur. I am additional. Yes, I am proud of you. Yeah, yeah, I got to. I got, um, I don't know, like a couple of hours into Wasteland 3, and the sharpness of the writing hit me really, um, really quickly right away. So uh, congrats on that. 
Oh, thanks, Mike. It was that was all me. Everything you liked was me. No, it it really wasn't. But no, the the we're honestly very proud to be part of that writing team. I think we did very well, and the reviews have been shouting that out too, which is actually really rewarding because that wasn't always that wasn't always a thing in video games. You didn't always read video yeah. game reviews, and they were like, "This is really well written." So that's a fairly recent phenomenon. But yeah, so that's shit. But yeah, so I'm just I'm waiting on a bunch of stuff. I'm working on video games. We're doing this podcast, and on we go with this thing of ours. Um, so yeah, so that's what we're all doing, and that's good stuff. And again, it illustrates that we wear many hats. And this is my way of segueing into talking to Mike about some of Mike's stuff. But before we do that, and because I'm trying not to do everything backwards, and because I was realizing when we were, we were recording uh, another episode that we waited until all the way to the end to talk about this kind of thing, I want to start, Mike. I want to start by talking about the thing that you need to promote on this show more than anything else right now, which is your new book. And I want to talk about Annihilation Aria. That's what I want to talk about. Can we talk right. about Sounds good. Yeah, I, uh, I'm far enough away now from the most intense part of the promotional cycle that I think my, my voice has recovered from singing and dancing all the time. <laughs> I get that. It came out in uh, July, right? That was the yeah, I, uh, I think it may have, we may have actually shared a, uh, a book birthday on this Wait, one. Oh, that's right. Did I have a book that came out in July? That's you right. Did, I, yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel like Mike's calling us out for, for having trouble booking him since i'm very sorry about that Mike. yeah no I'm no sorry like, this year is a mother effort so yeah. i'm just glad it. we it's a motherfucking year yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah so much so that literally just a few seconds ago i didn't remember that i had a book about july <laughs> but yeah Annihilation Aria and Savage Legion, they did come out at the same time, like right before my birthday, too. So you think it'd be easy to hold in my head, and yet it's not. Um, just a brief tangent here, but it's, it's a relevant one. Murr, did you know that Mike's and my career have intersected in interesting ways at many points? Did you know that, Murr? I don't think I knew that, Matt. Yeah, Mike and I, we were both part of uh, the launch line for Tor.com Publishing's uh, novella line that they started way back. And the long, long ago now, which I believe was like in 2015, Mike, is that right? Yeah, actually, I had a like a Facebook notice just pop up that uh, uh, it'd be five years uh, for for genre knots, and I presume for Envy of Angels, um, yeah. like this month or next month. Wow. So I yeah, I was I was on the nose there. It just it feels it feels like not that long, but it also feels like way longer than that. Does that make any sense? A hundred percent. Even yeah. before this year, um, like going into 2020, 2020 and people being like, yeah, best this of the decade, best that of the decade. Um, looking back on a number of years of writing, like this, the idea of things being in sequence and like levels of emotional impact of various like writing milestones is totally discombobulated for me. And I cannot imagine what it's like for someone who's like been working actively in a field for 20 something years. Yeah, that is a that is a heady concept to me as well at this point. But yeah, so we were both part of Tor.com Publishing's uh, launch line. We started our series at the same time. Then uh, a couple of years, a few years later, I think in 2018, uh, I had this really awful marketing job uh, working in uh, cryptocurrency of all things. And that company abruptly imploded, like right out from under me very suddenly. It was a big, big deal at the time. And I was scrambling to find uh, new work, and uh, Colin Coyle, the indomitable and lovely Colin Coyle, uh, founder and owner of uh, Parvis Publishing, 
took mercy on me and gave me a job marketing books for them, uh, which I only did for a few months. My book marketing career, you know, not not counting being an author, which is also being a book marketer, but we'll get into that in a little bit. My <laughs> my professional book marketing career only lasted a couple of months. And right at the tail end of it, Harvis acquired this new exciting book from this author, Mike Underwood, called Annihilation Aria. And I was very excited about that. I was like, I'm going to get to work on the marketing for Mike's book. And I read it. I got to read an early copy, early draft, and not an early draft, but like, you know, a pre-publication draft. I was very excited. thought it was wonderful. And then uh, I got another job doing something else and I had to draw and I had to, and I had to relinquish my position at par. It was right before I got to actually do anything. So I was very disappointed about that actually, because I was looking forward to that. So yeah, so I actually am tangentially connected just beyond, beyond sharing a, a book release day with Mike with Annihilation Aria and, uh, and, and was very excited to see it finally uh, drop. But so yeah, so that's just a coincidental thing I wanted to mention, but yeah, I think, I think the book is fantastic and I'd like you to tell us what the book is, Mike. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so Annihilation Aria is a found family space opera adventure, really in the vein of something like Guardians of the Galaxy, Firefly, Killjoys, um, but also influenced by kind of adventure romance stories of something like The Mummy or The Mummy Returns. It started in a conversation with an editor who shall remain nameless because publishing, um, <laughs> where... I, at the end of a conversation, I said, I'd really love to write something that gave people joy the same way that I got joy as a viewer watching Guardians of the Galaxy in terms of a sense of uh, energetic, playful adventure storytelling. Um, and so where that, where that led is to a, uh, a story with a kind of cheery xenoanthropologist and a stern kind of space warrior who... Um, meet, try to help each other fulfill their various quests, one to get home, the other to find the lost heir to their people, and along the way they fall in love. And the novel starts seven years after they meet. So uh, when the book begins, they've already fallen in love and gotten married, and now they are a happily married adventuring pair who um, still have a fun, loving relationship that has a lot of energy to it, um, but it's way past the point that a lot of stories would bother focusing on. Instead of the romance arc being, oh, oh, there's some tension here and there's gonna be some, maybe there'll be some pining or some yearning, which is all good stuff. Um, and then they get together at the end. Instead, I'm doing something much more like The Mummy Returns where uh, they're together, that part is already fun and exciting. And then here's the real story, which is, you know, they're kind of, Tomb Raider scavengers on the edge of a galactic empire ruled by like 15 to 20 something foot tall, like five tentacled space tyrants. And, you know, we're operating in the kind of space empires um, uh, area of space opera. And first they're just trying to scrape by living on the fringe and they, they get a archeological find that puts them uh, dead center in the crosshairs of this galactic empire and they have to figure out how to uh, understand what it is enough to be able to sell it off or get it to where it needs to be and it's, it was a really fun book to write the response has been really better than anything else i've um, put out so far and it was a book where i felt like i was able to meld my 
my interest and aptitude, like trained aptitude in like action adventure storytelling with right. my academic folklore background in terms of doing world building and you know putting out something that's more than just a string of fight scenes connected with um, you know bailing wire. <laughs> <laughs> that old bailing wire that we all used to stitch our bullshit together. This is different uh-huh. from the snowflake method, but but still connected, right? The bailing yeah, wire so. method. <laughs> Are you gonna explain what the snowflake method is, Mer? Uh, it's it has to do with craft. You might yell at me. <laughs> I will allow it this once. How about that? The snowflake method is a method of outlining a novel that starts with I, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's like you come up with three major points, like uh person, place and thing, or person, place and conflict, and then you start fleshing each one of those things out in a very specific kind of way so it it gets grow it grows and gets faceted like a snowflake so you're at one point you do like a log line for your novel and then you flesh that out to a paragraph and then you take every sentence in the paragraph and make that a paragraph and it's not writing the book that way it's it's outlining and uh it's just a way to like start small and then grow out as you outline. I've tried it and still being a pantser, I was unable to really make it work for me, but uh, I've seen a lot of other people make really good use of it. Cool. That, that's the snowflake I, method. I felt like context was due there. So yes, I do hate talking about craft in the show generally, but <laughs> Mike's on, it's a special occasion. So Yay. there you go. For all the people who want who always want us to discuss craft more, there was one just for you. Um, no, but the, I, I, you just described all the reasons I love the book, Mike, because I love found family. I love that kind of retro, but also updated sort of adventure space vibe. I love what she did with kind of making it more about like, you know, they're a unit now and they know each other and like they know how to like work together. And honestly, is there a better comp title than The Mummy or The Mummy Returns? Who doesn't love The Mummy and The Mummy Returns? So all that is good stuff. Also, can we just acknowledge one of the best titles ever? I want to just make that clear. I love the title so much. That was one of my big ideas that I didn't get to implement when I was going to do marketing for the book. I wanted to ask the question, what is an Annihilation Aria? And then I wanted to have like a bunch of people give wrong answers that were funny, and then you would give the right answer. I thought that was very clever. As a marketing professional yourself, maybe you're like, that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. But like, <laughs> that was like my big idea. And I was sad I didn't get to do it because I thought it was really clever. Um, but yeah, so that's that's great. Like, it's really great. That's uh, I'm glad people are digging it. I absolutely recommend everybody check it out. It's a really, I think it's kind of like, it's one of the, it's a book we need right now. Like, it's something that's, just really good escapism. It's really going to make you feel good about life and like living it. And, you know, it's going to get you out of your head for a minute. So definitely check that out. <clears throat> so as we mentioned, that is with, that did come out with Parvis, right? I'm not wrong about that. Nothing changed since I left. Yeah. It's um, paperback and ebook with Parvis and Dreamscape Media did the audio edition. And they actually got two readers, um, which is really fun. And the, the first time I've had a multiple reader audiobook. Oh, that's awesome! That I did not know. Yeah, I, I love I love it when audiobooks do that. We'll definitely check out the audiobook then. That's fantastic. And again, we'll have links to all these things in the show notes for y'all. But uh, so, Mike, you've done all the publishing. Let's start mm-hmm. with that. Like you, <laughs> you've worked with uh, you know the big. You've worked with big presses. You know, with your uh, with your Re-Rays books and your genre nods. You've done small presses. You know, with Parvis. 
you do uh, self, you know, author publishing as well. So, like, you've worked at all ends of the spectrum. Do you feel like it's a fair assessment of your, your fiction writing career? Yeah, I, feel, I don't think I've done every little subtype, but I have definitely worked and published broadly within the field, um, as long as we're still talking about science fiction. Yeah, absolutely. And we are right now. I mean, we can talk about other things if you want, but I felt this would be a good place to start. And just, I, I really just wanted you to talk a little bit. I know this is, a, this is and again, this is a very broad subject, but just kind of like when you think about publishing in those different sort of, you know, mediums, um, is there any big differences that jump out at you immediately between working with a bigger publisher, working with a small press, working with author publishing? Is there like, like if someone's going to ask you, the very general question of like, what's the difference? What are some things that would immediately jump out at you if you're going to tell them if they were if they were trying to decide what do I want to do? Like, what's the what's like right. the vibe you would give them? So I think the framing that I have settled on and tried to unpack for people is what do you want from your career? It's turn it back on them and right. try to understand more what does being a successful author feel like and look like to them. You know, if it's somebody who they've got a day job and they like the day job and they want to be able to publish a book every year or every few years and feel like they're supported and that the work is able to get out into the world. Cool. Traditional publishing is more likely to give you that type of satisfaction than self-publishing because you're able to, you know, enter a partnership and have somebody else do a lot of this work and the result that mostly you get to focus on is writing the book and then getting to kind of talk about it out in the world. If somebody really wants to make a living, be totally in control, have their own business, then that lines up with the real expectations and requirements in self-publishing. So those are two of the biggest differences for me um, in terms of very broadly, if you're at the base of the publishing mountain and trying to decide, do I want to go more the traditional route or more the indie route? And then beyond that, a lot of it becomes, you know, if you're working with a publisher or you're thinking about a specific model, it's setting your expectations within that. How much support are you getting from a publishing house? What size of a deal is it? What is that likely to do in terms of framing how they're going to promote it, how much money is going to go into it, the approach that they're going to take, whether that is event focused, online marketing focused, um, you know, kind of blurbs and buzz focused. Is this something that they're going to try to get into a lot of indie bookstores versus uh, something where they're going to operate more off of word of mouth? Like after the first step, my sales and marketing brain from having been a bookseller and then sales rep and then working at Angry Robot starts to kick in. Um, so when I'm giving advice, I really try to make it a conversation and to meet someone where they are instead of having one answer. No, that's beautiful. And that actually kind of segues perfectly into one of the big things I wanted to talk with you about because you just you just touched on it. You know, you've worked as a bookseller, you've worked in sales for publishers, you've worked on the marketing side of things. I think one of, I mean, it's all, you know, alien when you, when you're new and you get into it, but yeah. if you're working specifically with a traditional publisher or with a bigger publisher, I think one thing that's very important to kind of convey to people, something they don't, not, something authors don't think about because new authors in particular, you know, unless they have an existing kind of business savvy, they're so creatively focused just on the book part and just figuring that out in the, edit, the whole editorial process. They don't think about the sales and promotional side of things. So I'd really like to talk to you about what do authors need to know? What questions do they need to ask? What, what can they expect when you're working with the marketing and sales side 
of a publisher? Like, what are the what are, what is like a cra- like a crash course you can give new authors coming into that situation who don't know the questions asked and don't know what that side of the process is like? Right. So one of the first things to figure out, and this is probably something you want to ask your agent first, is how big of a deal is my book for this publisher? Right. Your your advance is probably going to shape that answer. If you're getting a really big advance, the book better be a big deal or the publisher is doing a weird thing where maybe they had to like auction up to a level and then there's a leadership change and suddenly your book doesn't matter. That is less common than, okay, I've got, you know, a $10,000 advance, but who at this publisher is behind my book? And that's a question that you're probably going to have to get answers for through your editor because they're going to be kind of usually your, your main point of contact at a traditional house. That's been my experience and it's what I've seen a lot, a lot of other places. But it can be hard, especially if you're like just getting started, to ask so straight shooter a question of how big of a deal is my book for your, for your publishing house. Instead, right. it's more likely that your agent is going to be able to help you figure out and that that goes into a broader set of questions about what should I expect from this publishing experience? Um, a good publisher for me is going to be able to have that conversation with you. They will lay out a schedule for you. They'll kind of put put questions and and topics and projects in order so that you know, okay, six months out from publication is when we're going to start doing X and Y and Z or right upon publication, it's really good to know what is the publisher's vision for the book. Like how, how big and important is it for your house overall? How is that reflected in what their plan is? A publisher should have a specific plan for every book. Sometimes that may just look like, oh, well, this is effectively a B-level book, so it's going to get this type of support. The earlier in the process you can know what that's going to look like, the more you can kind of internalize that, maybe get over any disappointment about like, oh, wait, so that I'm not probably going to get to go to BEA and be on a big stage in front of a thousand people, um, because that's very rare. Um, But when you do know what a publisher is expecting of you as an author and expecting from the book in terms of what what they think it can achieve, then you're going to be able to start building on top of or around that with your own expertise, your own interests, in your own capabilities in terms of promotion. Again, that's that's very interesting, and also I'd like to I like to build on that because that's where I wanted to go uh, next. And you because you get into what you are going to have to do or what you may have to do as an author to help promote your book in addition to whatever the sales and marketing team of the publisher is doing. So I wanted to ask you just in, and I, this is I know this is all your opinion. I'm not I'm not looking at you as the definitive authority on everything, but you have a lot of experience. You know, you're an author. Let's let's say you're working with that traditional publisher. They're doing whatever they're doing to help market your book. Maybe they're not necessarily doing everything you'd hope they would be doing, which is a situation I think most authors are going to find themselves in. What are do you have like some methods or some direction or something that you can point to and say this these are good things you can try to do to get your to get the book and word of mouth going and get your book out there and that you can do yourself to promote your book basically. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things and so much of it depends on what you bring to the book and what you bring to your career. Um, You know, if you're an author and you have a cultivated interest and an engagement in some other community, um, like, okay, cool. Well, for me, I was in the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism for five years. 
Um, and that stuff that I did studying historical martial arts and kind of all the socialization doesn't really directly relate to this book, but I have been able to kind of bring some of those friends and um, colleagues from one, another part of my life into the book. And what that looks like is thinking about all of the different on-ramps to a project from the places of your life that you have been and are still. So how do I sell this book to my friends who mostly like fencing and history? Okay, right. well, I can, I can talk about, here's this character who has a great sword and I'm drawing upon this experience that I uh, of what I learned about this specific sub-style of martial arts and it's got these action elements. And then I'm also really concerned with how history is framed retroactively in the way that the world building operates. So I learned to think about the different ways to sell the same book to different people so that I'm not just only ever pitching one way and so that I can feel like when I am publishing books, um, I know how to communicate to different parts of the world, whether that is people I already know or being able to adjust on the fly if I'm going to be pitching, if I'm like at Origins or Gen Con and I'm sitting behind a booth and someone comes up and I start talking with them and like, oh, okay, yeah, they're in the SCA. How do I draw upon my experience to be able to convey to someone why they might be excited about this book? So one really big thing is learn how to pitch your one book in a bunch of different ways and learn to interrogate your own experiences and perspectives and ideas so that you can see the different things that you brought to and put into uh, any given book. Uh, and I think that that will let you have a bit more self-knowledge and it should start to train those skills of being able to reframe and adjust how you're talking to a bunch of different readers. That's, like uh, that, that, that's freaking brilliant. Mike, and I have two questions for you, and both of them will sound rude. One is, <laughs> why has no one ever told me this? I am I am not a huge veteran, but I've put out a couple of books by now. Why has no one told me this? I want you to give uh, me their reasons. <laughs> I think their reasons is that a, a lot of authors don't get much access to their sales and marketing staff, in my experience. And... In, in science fiction fantasy, there may be a fair number of people who have not had the specific variety of background experiences that I have because I worked retail for five years at a game store. And then I did a graduate degree, including talking about subculture, genre, and aesthetics. And then working as a bookseller, working as a barista while being a bookseller. So different like learning to read people stuff. And then being a, a traveling sale, uh, sales uh, rep on commission, selling hundreds of titles, um, then going into Angry Robot. So I think a lot of people may not have the language to convey that information to an author and or the publisher isn't expecting the author to be that effective of a sales um, agent for their own work. Wow. <clears throat> Yeah, but that's, I feel like, and this is no no way accusing you of anything, Mike. I just get I get angry about the general subject. It's like, isn't that such a huge contradiction, though? That idea that like they don't expect you to be effective, but they absolutely do expect you to go out and sell the book on your own to a huge extent a lot of the time, 
<laughs> or at least it certainly feels that way to many authors. Yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> okay, see, that was going to lead into my next question, which is that checklist or that questionnaire. And you know uh -huh. what questionnaire I'm talking about. It's yeah. if you're, because I, I hear it's everywhere, you get a questionnaire usually about two more three to five pages of questions for the author to answer about how best to market the book including like what booksellers do you know personally uh what who do you know online that we should approach to review your book and i'm thinking one i do know people who can review stuff and i have been told from cory doctorow that Approaching him as a friend to ask him to put your book on Boing Boing. He's not on Boing Boing anymore, but at the time it was approaching him directly to say, help me promote my book on Boing Boing is not the way to do it. And so I know personally, I don't want to exploit my friends and it's much more uh, professional for the damn bookseller to go, hey, Boing Boing, you need to check out this new book. And, yeah. um, but it, it often feels like they're asking me to do their job and the part of the job that I can do feels disingenuous to my friends and the parts of the job I can't do. I'm thinking, I wrote the book. I did my part. So why are they doing this? It's, it's infuriating. Um, on a scale of centrism to, um, blasting, uh, the international from the rooftops. Where would you like me to calibrate my answer? So big, go home. Yeah. Uh, so all all of the publicists I knew when I hung out in New York, when I was living in Queens and working for Angry Robot, were just like chronically overworked. And I think that capitalism's abuses of labor in the U.S. are so extensive and precarity is so pervasive that a lot of people have internalized helplessness to the degree that uh, they're just trying to get by. Even in creative careers where someone comes to books because they love it, that love, that kind of aestheticization of the industry allows for the suppression of wages and overwork. So it means that all of our colleagues on the staff side are probably underpaid, overworked, and there are not real incentives for them to uh, innovate above and beyond kind of the baseline that is indicated because they don't have equity in the company. So the whole system is super fucked. And I think a lot of people are so overworked and not well incentivized or supported in terms of management and policy to be able to go above and beyond that kind of really basic, like, here's how we publish a book. Either you don't have the budget, like I didn't have it in Robot a lot of the times, um, or you are so busy with so many different things that you go, you, you pick up an author and like, okay, cool, awesome. We're working with Mer Lafferty. Mer is a total pro. Um, here's a bunch of things I don't have to worry about because I have too many things to try to work on already. And of course they want to build on what we already have, but something that I've come back to and been trying to bang the drum of louder and louder as much as I can in the last few years is that if this is a professional business partnership between us as the authors and the publishers, then that should be an, a partnership of equals. And it's just about impossible for that to be so because they're in many cases, 
multinational global corporations. And even a small publisher like Parvis still has access, capital access, in a way that we never will until we fundamentally change the industry. And so it's kind of crappy. (laughs) Oh, God, that was awful, but also just, I'm just happy to hear somebody say the things, Mike. That's that's just all that odd. Yeah, Yeah, and I, I say this with so much love and solidarity with my former colleagues on the staff side, because I've done that thing. I've been the person who couldn't get the support, who had too many things to to follow through on. And I want better for all of them. No, absolutely. And look, man, I, I have been in several situations where I have just been so incredibly frustrated and honestly furious at a publicist I was working with a publisher because of what I perceived as what I wasn't getting or what was being mishandled and on and on and on. And I worked so hard to remember that, like like you said, this is one person trying to do an incredibly difficult job, probably not being given the resources they need to do that job. And they're doing, they're, they literally are doing the best they can. Like they can start to sound trite, but it is, they're doing the best they can. So it's, you know, but they're the only person that the author is dealing with. That's where I think it gets really difficult on the author side of it. Like you've got this one person you're talking to or a few people and even though you need to be aware, this is a whole elaborate, huge system that they're dealing with that's that's beyond you and all these other things are going on behind the scenes, you're only getting access to this one part of it. And like I I try so I struggle so hard to remember that when being in these situations. And I definitely think that's something worth knowing and remembering for authors working with the staff side of things. Like you're not dealing with the publisher, you're not dealing with the cigar chewing, you know, billionaire desk. <laughs> This is how I always see the person who owns whatever publisher I'm with. That's probably not accurate. Whatever. Um, You're dealing with a person who is on salary and, you know, they're not getting a cut of whatever your book does. Like, it's just not it's it's just not as much in their vested interest as it should be. So they're they're doing the best they can. And I am aware of that. And I'm glad we, we talked about that. I just don't know how to actually change or figure any of these things out. That's the frustrating part. Well, like, I was, we know it needs yeah. to change, but I don't know how to change it. Like, if anybody, if I was going to suggest. You do, Mark, you do. Yeah, sorry. throw it out there. Well, what I wanted to talk about was um, I that's that your shouting from the rooftops makes perfect sense. But I think for me, that communication needs to be something like hey, if you have any of these, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. Whereas right now, all the ones I've, I've all, the, all the questionnaires I've answered really makes it look like if we don't have this information from you, we might get an ad in Publishers Weekly. I don't know. I mean, it, it really reads like, okay, here's the, bu- here's the burden, you carry it. Instead right. of, hey, if you happen to know the any any of these answers we'd love to hear them but it's like it more feels like here do this work and and that is what pisses me off yeah the it really feels like this is one of the big places where the midlist squeeze is being applied in a very material sense like here's all this extra onus that is on us as the authors and I think the sense that that can convey to other authors, especially people who are just trying to get started, is if the bar is up here, if things are hard for 
people who are already established, who already have some connections, who already know the lay of the land, what chance do I have? And that's a real valid fear and suspicion because the expectations are being raised so much. Everybody is trying to publish you know, more books in, in different ways as much as they can. Like 600 something titles came out this month because a bunch of stuff got pushed back and mm-hmm. it was already fall season. Like good luck to those publicists and good luck to anybody who is debuting this month. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're recording this uh, on Wednesday and yesterday I couldn't keep track of all the books that were coming out. And the other part that's uh, both amazing and fucked up is like, they're just, there were so many good books, so many like borderline brilliant books that are all coming out at the same time. So like one as a reader, I just feel overwhelmed and like, I, I there's no way I can possibly support everybody I want to support. As an author, I just feel like I'm drowning in it. Like there's people who are way better than me releasing all these books. Like why the hell am I even bothering trying to put something out? So it can, it's like you said, it can, it's just, it's very overwhelming right now. It's a very shitty time to be releasing book period with everything going on. But yeah, it can be very discouraging. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, yeah, that's like mostly ignoring the indie world where, you know, many, many authors are without any support, kind of any right. uh, industrial support network peddling their hearts out and probably writing themselves toward early graves trying to keep up with the algorithm right yeah the fuck man that's like a whole other oh i don't even know if we have time to get into that i just we're so we could mike we could talk to you all day and we'll get you on because there's like so many so many things i want to talk to you about we're not going to get to today i want to there are a couple of like functional things i want to cover before we wrap up though um because like we're not going to solve publishing today we're just not going to do it there's no there's no, <laughs> not going to happen we'll come back but tomorrow to, well, i'm sorry go ahead mike uh, should we come back tomorrow for that? Like, uh, just... <laughs> we'll just keep doing it every day until we figure out a solution. No, but like, so at the very least, I want to talk about some functional things yeah. that you can do or that I hope you can do or that we can at least touch on within the system we've got to try to help you out. Because there are some things that just occur to me and some things I've been through personally that I just want to put out there. And this is not me saying the way it is. I actually, I'm just going to put some scenarios out there. I want to get your feedback on it, Mike, and hear what you think, Mark. Um, the first is I really feel... And this is just something that I've like developed going through my own experiences. Like one thing when you're dealing with publicists or with book marketing with a publisher, you really need to try to focus on what are they doing for you that's targeted, right? Mm-hmm. That's specifically about you. And I'll give you an example of that. Like they, a publicist says to you, um, I'm going to try to get you on some podcasts. I'm going to try to go out there and get you some interviews, right? A question that I didn't know to ask until much later on when I found out how some of these things worked is, and the question I wish I'd asked was, are you going to are you going out to specific podcasts and saying, would you like to have Matt Wallace on them? Or are you sending a list of every book and author you have coming out around to a list of podcasters and saying, if you'd like to have any of these people, pick who you want? You know, So like, do you feel like that's a fair, like that's a good thing to be on top of? You know, to, to, to ask specifically? Yeah, when when I was at Robot, one of the things that I kind of pushed and, and tried to maintain as much as possible was a lot of transparency in promotional approach. Right. Um, and this is not, it wasn't just me. It was also in collaboration um, mostly with Penny Reeve, um, who was in the kind of publicity promotion role there. So we worked together on it. But it was building a publicity diary. It was, here is a shared like Google spreadsheet where we're all working on this thing. And so you know 
you, the author, know what we're working on, and um, we know, you know, this some of the stuff that you've been chasing. And that type of document, I think, is can be really great because from a staff side, it lets you keep everything organized in one place, and it can be used to communicate. And from the author side, probably more importantly, because I'm going to side with the authors over a publisher in situations like this and almost all other situations, um, is that gives accountability that you can ask for of them. You can say, okay, on the sheet you said you were going to pitch, you know, these 20 podcasts, and I can follow up about that because I've definitely had publishing experiences where communicating with a publicist was really like trying to um, pull teeth and I was getting so much like opacity and um, no real information about specifics of what they were working on. And this was far enough into my career that I already had some connections, but if I didn't know what they had, what the publisher was doing, I couldn't build on that in any real fashion. Um, so I think there is a bar of expectation that we as authors should be able to set and publishers need to start meeting, but it's gonna be hard to do um, except for those those of us who already have the clout or just being able to to build that into a greater expectation in the field. And one of the ways that I've tried to to kind of model that as an author is to like share my being organized. Like, cool, here's a, here's the spreadsheet that I've made and I'm putting all of my information on. And if I control the sheet, then I'm kind of setting the uh, I'm I've set the battlefield. And then I'm encouraging people to operate within my terms. And from kind of overworked staff side, I've made some work easier for, for people I'm working with. Cool, they don't have to make the spreadsheet. They can build on what I'm doing. And then if they join me in that information ecosystem, I get a lot more transparency, um, which really helps. Man, that is... I know it's a spreadsheet, but that's like revolutionary to me. That is an amazing idea. Well, let me ask you, like, I because I love that. I love that deeply. My cynical side immediately goes to like, well, what if they don't want to use your fucking spreadsheet or they like resent it or whatever? Like, how do you go about engaging them on the staff side to do that? Do you pitch that? Do you pitch it to them like that? Like, hey, I've made things easier for us. I'm taking something off your plate. Like, what if they're resistant to that idea? Is, is there anything you, you can do or anything, any kind of workaround or any kind of way you can sort of approach it to help them want to come along with it? Yeah, I have not gotten resistance along those lines um, in terms of like when I've when I've made the, the the move of building the spreadsheet, people have kind of met me there. Um, they may not always do as much on the spreadsheet as I might like because they're going to have their own internal systems and things that they're keeping track of because they're probably not going to use that spreadsheet to report to whoever their boss is or something. Right, but. Um, like the more diplomatic or like kind of sneaky approach could be something like, I have a really hard time keeping everything organized. Like, and for other authors, it's like, you know, I have to keep track of my kids' schedule or I've got this day job. Um, there's a bunch of really good reasons for, this is gonna be so much easier for me if we can have one clearinghouse for all of this information. And it would really help me be able to be more efficient in what I'm doing. If you'd be able to share at least like the most important things on the spreadsheet, or if you know we can have a check-in by email every two or three or four weeks, um, where if you're able to just 
distill everything as much as you can for me. And then I'm going to put this in the spreadsheet so that I can keep track of it. No, I know I dig this. You make it more of a request than you're trying to impose structure or set terms for them, you know, and then yeah. you, and you can also and if it comes to it, you can also kind of bargain or really not even bargain, but sort of like start out with, OK, how about just these things here we can keep track of? And you can even go from there and just start adding things to that and building on top of it. You know, so maybe don't come at if like if you're in a position where they're resistant, hopefully they won't be because I think there's a really good idea. But you could, like I'm saying, you could start with those things and then gradually add more things so it doesn't seem so overwhelming to them at first. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, like the sheet I used for ARIA was fairly extensive and probably a bit more extensive than it needed to be. Um, but that's because it's it's building on an iterative process over the course of a few projects. Because uh, I used pretty much the same thing when I was just doing promotion on my own for like the genre knots Kickstarter and later genre knots releases and, and things like that. So there's going to be calibration in terms of what's going to make it easiest for someone else who is probably working on a bunch of different titles at once so that you're not just getting something out of it because they're using the system, they're getting something out of it, which then ideally means you're getting a better, like a, a more efficient use of their time, whatever limited time they do have for your book. No, I think that's a great tool to add to your toolbox. I really, I really, really like that you brought that up. It's something I hadn't thought about, and I think that's just genius. Honestly, it's a great, it's a great workaround and a great thing to add to your toolbox. Um, I know we're coming up on time here. There's one other thing that I demand we cover because selfishly, it, it's just something I've been dealing with. Uh, Mur, are there any questions you want to ask Mike before I go into my final thing? No, I'm kind of just sitting here reeling. Um, Mike's been dropping Mike the dropping truth bombs and what? Mike just dropped a knowledge bomb. I know, I know. I'm just, uh, yeah, Mike, you, you, you hurt my head, but it's, it's <laughs> really, really amazing and useful information. Really appreciate it. Well, hopefully it's like ga galaxy brain hurt. Yes. Okay. It's a good town hurt. It's the hurt that births universes. Um, so I want to stick with the marketing side of things. I want to talk about a very specifically, uh, COVID thing right now. Um, yeah. They're related to marketing books right now, right? So right now, every and this is something I'm just I'm putting to you, Mike, because I want to hear your thoughts on it. Again, this is not I'm not making definitive statements. I'm just like posing a scenario and some questions. Um, so right now, everybody's doing virtual book tours, right? Like we're not doing, you know, by and large, nobody's doing physical book tours. Everybody, regardless of how big you are, in a lot of cases, whether you're a bestseller at a publisher or whether you're a debut, your only options at the, right now are to tour virtually. You know, that's what that's what I'm seeing everybody doing. Everybody's doing bookstores that like sponsored stops on a virtual book book tour with a bookstore, usually in conversation with somebody. That seems to be the model that we're going with right now. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's that's been my experience. And it's the it's the thing I did. And I felt pretty good about it. Yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing. And it, when you're talking about book tours traditionally, right, you were talking about sending an author out on the road to go to physical bookstores in a lot of different places. There's a lot of cost associated with that, right? There's travel, there's accommodations, there's a lot of overhead involved in a physical uh, book tour. So traditionally, those are reserved for people who make whose books make enough money to justify spending that money on sending them out on tour. So you'd see people, you know, in a higher tier of selling books, bestsellers and whatnot, who get those book tours, and then lower on the tier if you're a debut, uh, you know, if you're midlist or whatever, when midlist was still a thing, you probably wouldn't get a book tour or could hope to get one. Or, you know, maybe you might get, if you sold well enough, you might get packaged with a few other authors and they might send you all out on tour. Like, that was the best you could expect. 
Uh, am I accurately summarizing that, Mike? Yeah, I think that that's, that's pretty fair. And the thing that is tricky now is um, authors have, we've made, so many of us have made ourselves so available hmm. in the efforts to build a community and or build a platform that uh, I, I've noticed in at least the last few months that there's there's kind of an overexposure effect in terms of everybody is trying to do bookstore events. There's three different virtual conventions in one weekend. Right. And again, that like plurality of everybody is stuck hustling creates new challenges on top of everybody having to scramble to virtual. No, absolutely. And that, and that is totally an issue because like, just for me, I, I can, I can barely keep up with like my friends doing these things who I want to support their events. Cause there's like so many of them going on all the time. It's just difficult. It's just yeah. difficult to find the time to devote to all these things. And you want to, you know, you want to, you want to assume there are enough readers out there to support all of this. But yeah, that does that does become an issue. Um, the thing I wanted to, to get at, though, and the thing that I, you know, I've been dealing with this year is, so if you're, say, you're a debut author coming into a publisher right now, right, mm -hmm. and you want to promote your book, the I guess the big question I want to ask is like, it's always dangerous to play uh, the comparison game, right? Like you shouldn't mm -hmm. compare your situation to another author's. You especially shouldn't compare your situation to an author who's more established and has more books out there and has a bigger brand and sells more books than you. Like you should not do that. That's not healthy. But the thing that has kind of occurred to me in the time of COVID is in terms of like tours and resource and everything, because everything is virtual now, is it unreasonable to expect a publisher to put time into like, say, organizing a virtual book tour for you uh, if you're a debut author, simply because they don't have it's they don't have the overhead of the logistics that they did with a physical tour. Like, does it level the playing field? I guess is what I'm saying. Like, should is it is it it's accepting that it's unreasonable to expect them to do that for a physical tour? You know, the same thing they would do for a better selling author. Is it? unreasonable or does it become reasonable when everybody's doing the same virtual thing and it's not the same it's not the same situation anymore i think from our perspective as an author it's totally reasonable for us to ask publicity partners to give us some support in trying to make those bookstore and or like virtual con bookings i think the challenge comes in when we have we contend with the fact that that's what everybody is trying to do. Right. And from a publisher perspective, if if they are communicating with, you know, say, Mysterious Galaxy, and they go, okay, we have four authors, uh, we have like four different books out this month. Can we realistically place all four of them in virtual events with Mysterious Galaxy to do something virtual? Even if like Mysterious Galaxy is doing three events a week, because from their perspective, they have their own relationships with all of these bookstores, with, you know, maybe with conventions and kind of with these other platforms and groups. So they're managing their relationships in a way that is very different because their investment in you is one among a number of things. And so that becomes tricky because maybe they, you know, from their boss, like, you know, you really got to get best-selling author into Mysterious Galaxy because it's been two books since they didn't like there's all this like publishing history is long stuff going on but none of that helps you as the individual author right and so I think it's really important to keep on advocating for yourself and to build on that the thing that I've been trying to do kind of since COVID is 
as much as I can, and like other circumstances allow, lean into other things that I'm doing, that I like doing, that can help me get out in front of the world, which has been some Patreon stuff when I can, and it's also been the speculate, playing tabletop games with colleagues, because a bunch of different people are doing bookstore things. Not as many people are running and playing tabletop games in specific settings. And so that, like being able to provide or give some other kind of content marketing um, has been useful, but then that still kind of re uh, requires authors to instrumentalize parts of their lives in right. order to be able to compete in the publishing world. Um, and how, you know, people, different people are gonna be uh, at different levels of comfort with that. But I think when the promotional landscape is so narrowed, you definitely want to try to get your foot in on that side in terms of the virtual events. But it probably makes sense for us to all think about different types and modes and forms and genres of digital communication to be able to get the word out. No, that makes total sense. And I, I mean, that wasn't even the point I was trying to get up. I love that, that idea of diversifying uh, your marketing content. You know, we always talk about diversifying your revenue streams as freelancers here, but in terms of marketing, I guess you, you do, especially now, need to diversify your content. And I can see how that would be very helpful. And I'm just sitting here going, oh, damn, I need to do that more. I've gotten lazy on that. Like, you're just, I'm learning from you, Mike, right now. Like, you're just. Are you taking notes, well, Matt? I am. I'm literally taking notes. Good. Yeah, and it's it's hard because I, I certainly have a lot less energy uh, during the pandemic than I did before. And there have been days where it's all I could do to spend an, like two hours doing promotional stuff for Aria and then like my brain's pretty much toast and yeah. I've, I've had to use you know I've had to you know go to video games and things like that because I'm in a lucky position where my writing money doesn't have to be what pays rent um, right. and so I have not tried to push myself too far beyond that um, so like one of the other upsides to this idea is figuring out what types of promotion you can do that doesn't just totally hollow you out. You know, is that, oh, like actually really like, you know, email interviews or email conversations for promotion. I personally love doing podcasts. So, you know, adding more podcasts to my promotion was not something where I felt like, oh, I'm going to overextend myself. So one of the other things that we can do as authors, um, and this probably is going to take, you know, trial and error, is figuring out which ways of being in the world virtually or physically um, are more validating and fulfilling and less enervating for you? No, yeah, we always advocate balancing everything you do in this wacky freelance life with self-care. Like that's very, that's a very important thing. And just a practical thing too, because if you burn out, it's gonna, you're, it's gonna be completely counterproductive to what you're trying to accomplish anyway. So yeah. just in addition to taking care of yourself, it's also just a good business practice to keep yourself as fresh and not burned out as possible. Um, yeah, oh, man, that's that's all great stuff, Mike. I Like I said, I'd like, I so many other things I'd like to talk to you about, we will get you back on the show, but like for now, I think we're, we definitely either are coming up or did come up on the hour. So we should wrap things up here, Murr, for now. I believe we should. Mike, can you tell us where to find all, you and all of your awesomeness online? Sure thing. So my website is michaelrunderwood.com, which is a good starting point. I'm on Twitter still too much 
at Mike R. Underwood. So that's Mike and then the letter R. Underwood, um, because Michael R. Underwood was too many characters. Um, I have a Patreon where I share essays about like the business of publishing, as well as some craft stuff and a little bit of like tabletop role playing, plus cute pictures of my very good dog, Oreo. That's at patreon.com slash Michael R. Underwood. Uh, and like I mentioned, I co-host a podcast called Speculate, which is an actual play, tabletop role-playing podcast, where we've had fabulous science fiction fantasy professionals like Murr Lafferty um, on playing games from Scum and Villainy to Dungeons and Dragons to uh, Blades in the Dark. Awesome. Excellent. Murr, where can um, we find you on the interwebs? You can find me at murverse.com and you can find uh, the Patreon that supports me and Matt at uh, patreon.com slash mightymer. I want to give a shout out for the Escape Pod 15th Anniversary Anthology that has uh, epi- epi- uh, sorry, that has um, stories from old episodes of Escape Pod, has new stories by some amazing authors, and has a new six-week story by me that's coming out in October, I think October 20th, and if you like anthologies, I highly recommend it and, you know, it's because I'm the co-editor, but I think it's awesome because why would I choose stories that aren't awesome, guys? Come on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wasn't I wasn't going to accuse you, but uh, yeah, that's absolutely, that's accurate. Accurate, Murph. No lie was detected in that statement. Thank you. <laughs> Shout out to Escape Pod, though. We love Escape Pod on this show. I mean, obviously, because Murph's an editor, but I also love Escape Pod. Yay. Been there since day one with the Escape Pod. I remember listening to the first episode of escape pod and saying that made me feel so fucking old that i don't even know why i brought it up but it was a thing <laughs> yeah escape um, pod was my second ever fiction sale nice yeah no that was a very yeah, i still remember that was a big deal selling a story to escape pod it took me a long time for how long i had known everybody over there they always said my stories didn't fit these like i sold a bunch of pseudo pod like every other podcast i sold a bunch of stories but escape pod was was a tough nut to crack because again, Mur, you only pick stuff that is awesome. Like that's a thing. So um, anyway, so I have a new book out, relatively new. July wasn't that long ago, Mike. It really wasn't. Like we're talking about, like yeah. it came out all the way back in July in the long, long ago when everybody wore short pants. I don't know why they were wearing short pants, but literally, like it was. It wasn't even two months ago at this point. Yeah, not even two months ago. So yeah, a new book out, Savage Legion, came out the same day as Mike's Annihilation Aria. They're both amazing books. You should both go buy. You should all buy both of them. Um, and uh, I'm on the Twitters, Matt F. and Wallace, YouTube, Angry Writer, my beautifully redesigned relaunch website, matt-wallace.com. Lots of good stuff there. We're all just fantastically interesting people. Go check out all of our things. I think that, that really says it all, Mer. I think that does. Mike, thank you so much for uh, being on the show and for being patient with us trying to set this up. Sometimes it's more of a challenge than you would think uh, to make the interviews yeah. happen seamlessly. So uh, we appreciate your, your being here and your patience. Seamlessly. It has been a, <laughs> uh, an utter delight uh, to be here. Uh, I've, I have no, no shit like daydreamed about what it would be to actually get to be on Ditch Figures and talk with y'all as I've been Alyssa along the way. So this is Oh God, I hope we per- I Thanks. hope we delivered. It's <laughs> a lot of a lot of retroactive pressure. I'm not yeah. like, like unexpected about. levels of delight about the geopolitics of cowboy hats. Okay. Nice. Good. We led with that too, because that's how we roll around here. 
Yes. Uh, thank you, Mike. And uh, I will talk to you next week, Matt. See you next week, Mark. You can support us at patreon.com slash mightymur. Ditch Diggers! Theme song by Devo Spice. DevoSpice.com.